0: Welcome to the Book Week Scotland Conversations podcast. Four conversations from Book Week Scotland on the themes of reading, childhood, language and home. A conversation about home. Welcome from me, Tom Pow, here to introduce you to the Book Week Scotland Conversations podcast from Scottish Book Trust. In conversation are Megan Delahunt, the fearless author of several novels, each of which is distinguished by a vivid sense of place, and David Keenan, whose second novel, The Good Times, has recently been awarded the Gordon Byrne Prize. Megan's childhood home was in Australia, while David grew up in Shettleston and Airdrie.
1: Do you
2: remember the first book that you read on your own?
1: I have vague memories of being read to, but I can't remember the first one that I, that I read. What about you?
2: My memory of first reading books is all tied up with libraries, going to libraries, you know, so there's a difference for me between the first books that I read and the first book that I owned, because I would say as a kid, mostly, yeah, I was into science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably think early writers that I read were people like... Uh, John Christopher John Wyndham uh, Terence Dix who actually novelised a lot of the Doctor Who novels and things like that okay. so I was very much a fan of that but the first book I remember owning was more significant I actually brought it with me it was it's Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World by Simon Welfare and John Fairley now I was a fan of Arthur C. Clarke as a kid I read some of his children's science fiction and they did this series on TV about unexplained phenomena and um I was completely obsessed by it, and one afternoon, I came back from school for my, to, to have lunch, and my dad had left a copy of this on the table at lunch, which he'd bought me as a present, oh. and it was really the most the most remarkable present. And um, and you've still got it? I, yeah, I, I treasure that's, it. That's the this is the edition, yeah, it's wow. even got a little the, the cover the on it to keep it good covered. and everything as well, yeah. because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, grew, I, I grew up in the 1970s, and... Um, the seventies were a strange decade, a weird decade. Um, I remember the, the the power cuts. I remember us um, having um, a little gas cooker where we cooked on. I remember it being pitch black at night and it being quite exciting, quite strange. So I think as much of my childhood it was quite surreal. And I think the reason I've got a connection with something like Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World was it felt like. Um, a magical time. It felt like anything was possible. It felt like strange things could happen. I always wanted to get abducted by a UFO when I was a kid. And I really felt like it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. So I think books brought a sort of a, a, a magic
1: to my childhood. Mm-hmm. I can't relate to the 70s of, you know, grimness and darkness and, <laughs> you know, all that sort of stuff, because it was so different in Australia. You know, I grew up same kind of time period. hmm. But it was just a very very different – you know, all my childhood cultural associations, when I come here, you know, I don't have Blue Peter. I don't have,
0: Ah.
1: you know, Swallows and Amazons. So I had no cultural reference point with people that grew up in the UK or in Scotland or England and people who grew up in Australia, really. All ours are very different. A lot of them are quite American, you know, because Mm -hmm. we had – American culture was um, impacted on – Australian culture quite heavily Mm -hmm. so even by you know and by the 70s things were really starting to change in Australia but in a very different way Mm -hmm. because we had this you know I was very young early you know like 12 or something and the um, you know the British government interfered with the democratic process in Australia and sacked the elected government you know Mm -hmm. so we had a Labour government in for the first first time in 26 years and then suddenly they were um, you know tossed out by the governor general mm. and so that was the upsurge in my early teenagehood you know late childhood mm-hmm. and you know my parents were labor voters and they were just you know it, it really scarred a generation so my memories of the 70s are of sunlight and big demonstrations against what had happened you know wow. um hundred thousand people pouring onto the street straight away dad dad walking out of his work, uh-huh. you know, people downing tools and walking off. Because what, what the government, you know, it, it was a constitutional crisis that people don't know about here. Uh-huh. So that, that's my main memories of the 70s. And, of, uh-huh. and we both come from Irish Catholic that's backgrounds. Right. Oh, yeah. And I think and libraries were really important, exactly like what you were saying. Mm-hmm. That's a real memory of home too. Mm-hmm. You know, once every couple of weeks, the four kids trailing behind Dad mm-hmm. at the weekend to go to the library. And what a thrill that was. And I, I still get a thrill.
2: I still do. Your libraries were were massively so important, important. massively.
1: Because how can you? Have you got siblings as, as well?
2: I do. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Yeah. So went.
1: how can families at that time afford to buy books for lots of kids we, in the family? Yeah, we certainly more than one kid. Have. You couldn't have. Mm-hmm. And so, I think you know. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's so important. These libraries and what they gave us, and that mm-hmm. thrill of getting the stamp on the book.
2: Yeah, I loved that.
1: That's part of childhood. Absolutely. That, that is really, I think when I walk into a library, that's, that's home in a way.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Well, my, my actual home, my flat we're living in Glasgow, is probably modelled after a library, you know? <laughs> I mean, every wall was lined with books, yes. and I've always lived with books, and um, yes. it's part of why I like to be around. Um, was
1: it important in your family? Was you, did your mum and dad...
2: Well, it's funny because my father my
1: father couldn't read or write.
2: My father was a, an illiterate Irishman. Um, but it was strange because even though he couldn't read or write himself, he always encouraged me to read, which was quite amazing. He would say to me, well, read books that can change your life. And of course, part, I now think, well, how would he know? Because he never read a book. But he had an incredible faith in the transformative power of language, you know, and the, and the, and the, the uh, potential for books to change your life. You know, and I always thought... Um, my dad's faith maybe outruns some books because I think if, if he could have read, a lot of books would have disappointed him because a lot of books don't really change your life. But I made a vow early on that I would write the type of books that would live up to an illiterate person's fantasy of what they could be. That that became a sort of challenge for me. So and I, I think I get my faith in language from my father's faith in language
1: even though he couldn't, mm. He, he mm. couldn't read. I they mean, were, I think there is something about that generation in Australia particularly, I think, about the emigrant experience but you would have had that too uh-huh. yeah um and children of of migrants are encouraged to do better than their yeah. parents yeah and education is really important mm-hmm. and i think in celtic culture too i think it's really important you know the scots have that thing about education i think um the irish have a faith in words storytelling yeah,
2: absolutely yep
1: oral tradition Educating the next generation, my father was very conscious of being the child of immigrants, mm-hmm. and that they had a much better life in Australia than what they'd left in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Even though it was very difficult, um, sectarian and yeah. so on in Australia, uh, like Scotland in in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, books and education and, yeah, so I was the first in my family to go to university and that sort of right, stuff. Yeah. So mum and dad were very um, self-taught, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. in that way. You mm-hmm. know, books were important to them and reading to us. And I think there was a moment, I think
2: the generation that we both come from, it was a moment when working class people were getting access to culture for the first time. But, you know, my parents bought a stereo. You know, they would listen to records for the first time, and they actually had a small book collection. It was quite an amazing time, and I think that's why they thought it was so important because they saw that mobility was possible. They managed to my dad managed to escape from Ireland and troubles himself and have some kind of a culture. Like, I mean, he had a we. I grew up in Shettleston in the in the east end of. Uh, Glasgow, and my father bought a small house on an estate. But that was an incredible achievement for an uneducated Irishman to be able to actually even own. He was the first person's family ever to own a house. Yes. So, and and again, my mom was exciting, starting to buy books, starting to buy. Books. It was a beautiful moment, and I sort of inherited that um, care for culture. Culture is absolutely central to me, yes. and is, is a central faith of, my, of a central tenant of my faith is my belief in the sort of transformative power of culture, and I think I got it from that generation,
1: mm. and so. Um. yeah I'd agree absolutely it was important for them and and I think post-war mobility in Australia was different to here uh, you know I'm shocked when I look at photos of Glasgow in the 70s or even yeah. Edinburgh in the 70s and yeah. uh, you know the tenements and all that sort of thing I mean it's, it's it was so different in Australia. I grew up in uh, a suburb called Rosanna mm-hmm. which used to feel like you know the ends of the earth outside of the big smoke Melbourne and but now it's you know, only twenty minutes on the train, <laughs> so it's it's very close to the city, and uh, and I think if I if I think about community, it's very different. An Australian suburb is very very different to a Scottish village or an Irish village. You In know, what way? Well, if I give uh, it's, if I give more from my partner's point of view, when he went to Australia, he was there you know over thirty years ago, and he said when he went to Western Australia, he didn't see any people during the day. He didn't see people walking around. And the vi- and compared to a village that's very small and everybody knows each other, in a suburb, it's it's much bigger. And Australia is more set up for cars than Scotland. And so people are more a bit more confined to the house, I guess. You know, you don't see wee Willie's boy down the street, you yeah. know, with his dog or whatever. Um, it sounds more like an American suburb, actually. Again,
2: more like, there's well, almost an absence even, of sidewalks, even. And
1: yeah, I mean, no, there's lots of you know pavements in australia and and things like that but it's just a very it's a more spread out experience and the i think the other thing is there's space you oh, know uh-huh. and space for working you know it's always been achievable pretty much for the white working class anyway um to you know i'm leaving aside problems that you know traditional problems indigenous people have had in australia but it's been achievable to have your own home. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't a Thatcherite dream. Uh-huh. And so the, dr- the Australian dream was always the quarter acre block, the, um, the house in the burbs, you mm-hmm. know. And that was my parents' dream and my dad was in the war and they, they were all in the inner city and uh, their dream was to get out of the crowded inner city and out into the burbs. And then my generation, we couldn't wait to get back into the city. Yeah. You know, that was all I I wanted to do. And it interests me now that nobody writes these John Cheever-like short stories about getting out of the suburbs or in Australia too. You know, and I ask my niece and nephews, you know, don't you want to leave home? Don't you want to get out of the (laughs) suburbs? They don't have the same issues that we did. You know, to get out of, or in Australia anyway, I think it's slightly different. Why do you you think that is? Oh, I think it's a changing relationship with parents. You know, you don't have to skulk around to have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend. They can stay the weekend. You know, we were all skulking around trying to, you know.
2: You mean you think parenting has sort of become more liberal? Oh,
1: parenting has become so much more liberal. Uh, So why would you leave home? You know, and it doesn't matter if you're in the suburbs. And I think the internet makes people very connected anyway. So it doesn't matter if you're in the wilds of the highlands or an Australian suburb that seems to be on the outskirts. You're connected with other young people and you can... They're more mobile, you know, and they're probably... Yeah, it's very, very different, but I just couldn't wait to get out of the suburbs.
2: I mean, what about the whole ritual of individualisation? The ritual, that, that was a big thing for me. Of, I, I mean, I, I grew up in Shettleston, but then my parents moved to Airdrie around about 1978, I think. And um, Glasgow was always like this incredible, exciting sort of cultural yes, metropolis. Like Melbourne for me. Yeah, that would have been the same thing. And even just the thrill of taking the train from Airdrie to Glasgow, it was so exciting. And it was a whole world of culture and books and music. and
1: Absolutely. And part of that was a, a, a sort of initiation, the initiation of, 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 of leaving home. I think I have a complicated relationship. Things get a bit mixed up in my head about moving away and why I felt I needed to, you know, leave. You know, I wanted to leave home. And then I think, I think it's because I made some, you know, I, in my... Late teens, I joined this uh, revolutionary Trotskyist sect. And so that set me off on a path for the next eight years, being moved around Australia to agitate and organise. You know, So I went, right. I dropped out of my honours year at uni. By then I'd left home anyway. So you didn't complete university? I, I dropped out at the beginning of fourth year. I was on an honours degree and I dropped out of that and went to work in a car factory to ferment revolution. And that huh. sent me off...
2: <laughs> I love it, I, I love that It's so funny because I, mean, I, I always had a fantasy I have a recurring dream More of a, of a nightmare when I'm Exactly the same thing, I'm in the final year of, of university I went to university as well mm-hmm. and, uh, and I have to go To an exam and I realise I haven't been in any of the classes and I'm in an absolute panic But then I have a moment of revelation where I realise mm-hmm. Well I can just leave <laughs> i can just walk away from well, the university. Well, and I wish I had of,
1: you know. I and think... i wrote i wrote a letter saying they were a bourgeois institution, <laughs> I love which it. then i kind of regretted, you know. A friend was saying to me, don't you think it's a bit much, you know? I said, no, no, i have to tell them why i'm leaving because they're a bourgeois institution and you know, i'm off to ferment revolution in australia. Do people even do that
2: anymore? I can't imagine someone writing a letter to to denounce their university <laughs> as a bourgeois institution. I
1: love that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it seems, you know, very strange now, doesn't it? it does. To do that and to but live that, that life. Even a passion, and a way even, you know. Yeah, I'm really glad I had that passion. I think it was misdirected into what I now call a revolutionary cult. You know.
2: Yeah, very interesting. And
1: I think, and now also, I've reevaluated it all in the in the light of um, Me Too and Times mm-hmm. Up and the post Weinstein period mm-hmm. and. So I've written about that, and um, it's going to. I've got a new novel coming out next year, and part of that's in there. This kind of reevaluation, like a lot of women, you know, you're reevaluating the past, and I really reevaluate this. Trotskyist well, cult, you, even calling it a cult. You know. But you know, I,
2: I'm, I'm fa- one of the things I write about a lot in my books is I'm fascinated by that adolescent energy mm. and, and how it's directed or misdirected because it can end up in crime, it can end up in paramilitary violence as it did in Northern Ireland, it can end up in politics. revolutionary politics, it can end up in punk rock, it yes. can end up in all these different things. Yep. I, but I think it's a vital
1: energy. I it's an totally agree. energy. I totally agree. Know? And what I see is, okay, a lot of kids can't afford to leave home or they're not leaving home. But I can see that times in a way coming around again, you know, Extinction Rebellion, younger women not afraid to call themselves feminists, you know, calling out abuses of racism or, you know, whatever. I think the younger generation have got that again. You know, the 90s were a bit of a lull, I think, Mm -hmm. um, in the early 2000s. So I think I can see... Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. I think it's really, really important. And I'm very happy that I had that kind of passion and I still do, mm-hmm. but it's not directed in that way. It gave me so much material I was as a writer. So many experiences. Yeah, but I've never actually directly written about it, you have know. You not?
2: Why um, do you still feel a little bit unresolved or unreconciled about I've it? I tried.
1: I've tried to Well, I have these two um like the version of MI6 in Australia, which was called ASIO. Right. So I've after 30 years, I requested my files from them. I wasn't wow. sure that I did have files. Wow. And I do have files. And I found them, they're very banal but very disturbing. And I'd started writing a book called Working for the General because I was working for General Motors. Wow. And, you know, the only woman, the young woman on the floor and all that sort of stuff and I had to cut my hair and wow. make sure I didn't wear any, you know, lipstick or mascara. And, you know, it was it, all of that time. And all that time I was being spied on. That's incredible. For nearly eight years. And, and the thing about these files, um, you're a person of interest until the last thing that they put in these files is your obituary. And I find that quite terrifying, even though I'm on the oh. other side of the world. So, I f- you know, there's a lot about that period that was very difficult that I've even subsequently found out about. But it's also cool.
2: I mean, you're basically officially an enemy of the state, you know. <laughs>
1: Which is so ludicrous. They were listening to phone calls. You know they've got phone transcripts of me on the on the phone to a Palestinian guy talking about the demo that we're organizing you know wow. and the weird thing was I was the least paranoid person of anybody in this little sect you know a whole lot of other people including my you know various boyfriends at the time that say we think we think our phones tapped and I go come on you know we think that the sixth break in in our house and we had no possessions is really there's something about this, and mm-hmm. I'm going. Like, Come on! But actually, thirty years later, it's in the. You know, this stuff's in the file. So I think I'm. I found it difficult mm-hmm. to go back because it also means people were in there reporting on you. Yeah, weird.
2: And thinking, thinking about that whole discussion we've been having about adolescent energy and the, how it became a sort of obsession with me, I remember one of the things I loved about the, the Arthur C. Clarke book was a description of uh, mysteries of the third kind, which fascinated me. There's a lo- lo- really good piece in the introduction by Arthur C. Clarke where he says, A less appalling, though something is very frightening, mystery of the third kind is the poltergeist from the German literally noisy spirit. Although a healthy scepticism is required when dealing with all paranormal phenomena, because extraordinary happenings require extraordinarily high standards of verification, there is impressive evidence that small objects can be thrown around or even materialised with no apparent physical cause. Usually, there is a disturbed adolescent somewhere in the background, and although adolescents, disturbed or otherwise, are perfectly capable of raising hell by non-paranormal means, this persistent pattern over so many cultures, and such a long period of, period of time, suggests that something strange is going on. If so, it is a complete mystery. And such labels as psychokinesis are only fig leaves to conceal our ignorance. Now, I loved that. When I read that as a kid, I began to think that I was about to be gifted with psychic powers when I became an adolescent. And I do have quite strong memories of growing up in Shettleston of paranormal things happening. I'm absolutely sure I floated down the stairs one night. I have an absolutely sure memory of that. And I think being introduced to these kind of books and these kind of ideas at the time gives you a space for magic in your own life. So I grew up with the full expectation of receiving magical powers as a form of initiation at some
1: point. It's so interesting you say that because I, I was convinced I could fly and I used to jump off things all the time. And uh, I still kind of think I can fly. Uh-huh. But, and I used to have, you know, I, and I always had talismans and magic rings yep, and think that things could, you know, I could influence events. But Jung talks about exactly those things that Arthur C. Clarke's talking about, you know, synchronicity and the internal world being mirrored in the external world. And, you know, well, that I, I, find that, I find that all so true of my experience. And I think magic is in the world. But I think that also Irish Catholicism allows for a lot of that too. Absolutely. So there's a, some kind of <laughs> bedrock of that, if you like, that we've grown up with mm-hmm. that makes us more open to things that other people might say are superstition or disregard. I've I, always been aware of that other other space. And where does creativity come from, you know?
2: Well, I mean, I think you make the decision to... to decide whether something's magical or not and I think you can use a term like coincidence which kind of belittles reality or you can use a term like synchronicity which actually enthrones reality as being magical and it's your decision if you say well well, it's only a coincidence you've made a decision to somehow sort of denude reality of magic Mm. you know so I always take the other chance I will always take the gamble on the fact that it's magical me too you know I will always call synchronicity and do you think you get that from books because books are ways of retelling stories in a magical way and I think yes. there's something metaphysic just in the in, in in the telling. We're talking about Irish Catholic families, yes. and my second novel for the Good Things was very inspired by Irish tellings, uh, the way they would perform a story. So even though my dad left the Ardoyne um, in Belfast, the rest of his family did stay. So they lived through the troubles, and they're still they're still there. They would often come over to Airdrie uh, to visit us, and they would tell these stories of quite horrifying things, but it was almost like they they competed to tell them in the most magical way, the funniest way, the craziest story. And stories would not just be straight telling. They would involve jokes. They would involve circuitous detours. Mm. They would probably involve a song or a singing at one point. So when I wrote For the Good Times, I tried to have jokes. I tried to have songs. I tried to have performative storytelling Mm. just to capture this way of, that, that, that they would sort of, there's some kind of way of redeeming experience through telling and I yes. began to become aware that what my dad's family did was they redeemed all the suffering they went through by framing it as a great story
1: mm, mm. no I think I think that's that's true and yeah my dad would yeah he wouldn't so much tell stories but he just had a wonderful way of speaking mm-hmm. and that very funny very wry kind of observational humour that it's not at anybody else's expense it's often at your own expense and and uh, yeah, I, I really, really love that. And I think – but the magical stuff, the, the other dimensions to life, to me that's all bound up with creativity and where does creativity come from and, because don't you think the adolescent energy is also still inside the person in the room? could be inside us. Yes. So when there's a disturbance, you know, the adolescent in the room could be, you know, the 40-something, 50-something, 60-something person who still has some of that energy – to burn. Well, I Don't you well, I think
2: that's. Well, I think the best writers are the people that have maintained that because yes. there's kind of an idea that about culture that the culture is something as a it serves as a background to for when you're young or for growing up. But then you get real and you mm. move into the real world and you yeah. get a real job and you you take on responsibilities. But I think writers are people who have been able to. Not grow up and in one way, not grow up, but I don't mean that as a sort of like, oh, grow up mm, type thing. Mm. But I mean, we've kept that sort of naivety and that openness to
1: experience. Yeah, that wonder it. of childhood. And, you know, I think there's that, that Zen adage that I always go back to, to always be a beginner. You Absolutely. know, if you start a new book, you're a beginner. Well, it's know. always
2: about playing I never think to playing. myself I'm, I'm sitting down I'm a novelist and I'm writing a novel <laughs> no I think I'm no. playing I'm playing with language I'm chasing words it's what I do it's what I love to do it's playing the, with language it's play and if, we, and if you keep that sort of ludic facility yeah. that's that's, that's it. it
0: Tom Powell here again once more reminding you that Scottish Book Trust believes books, reading and writing have the power to change lives. A love of reading inspires creativity, improves employment opportunities, mental health and well-being, and is one of the most effective ways to help break the poverty cycle. If you believe books have the power to change lives, why not become a regular giver to Scottish Book Trust at scottishbooktrust.com slash donate. Now, back to the Book Week Scotland Conversation featuring Megan Delahunt and David Keenan on the theme of conversation and home.
2: I think my whole life has been a quest to find this sort of like inner circle of people. And even the way I've set up my own home, I mean I'm I also think we're talking about magic Astrologically, I am a Taurus as well and I think I really like roots I live right to earth mm. myself and although I travel a lot and I'm self-employed as a writer I like it's important for me to have some kind of central root and I've established my house and I live in the West End of Glasgow and it's very much a sort of writer's paradise there's no television for a start mm. we don't have that books everywhere I have real fireplaces I, and I still have this basic sort of uh, so- so-called primitive animism in that mm-hmm. I believe that the objects in my house are spirits and are animated and speak to me, which is why I don't buy pre-made furniture. I don't shop at Ikea. Another reason I don't have a TV is because they're ugly. I, my furniture is either handed down or found in the streets or made myself. Because mm-hmm. I think everything around me, I like to, has to have the right spirit, mm-hmm. even for me to live with it. Mm-hmm. Everything needs to be constantly inspiring and reinforcing my own values. So when I go back to my house, it's a sort of place where I sort of... Um, I recharge, and it still has that mythic thing that it feels to me like the light and the darkness, like the span of the campfire. That's why <laughs> I have the hearth as well. Yes. You know, that's like a magical circle. And that circle. notion of
1: storytelling around the hearth. Oh, yeah, So absolutely. you're doing that. Yeah, you're oh. the, the passing the story stick around, really. I'm in Aries with a lot of Pisces. Wow. And uh, so I, I think I've probably been pretty, pretty restless, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I, so I spent my you know, all my 20s, being moved around Australia. So the party's secretary would say, we need you in Adelaide, so go to Adelaide. We need you in Sydney, go to Sydney. Wow. You know, some, that would necessitate kind of leaving relationships, leaving friendships, you know, forming new homes. So, so I did that up until my late 20s. And uh, then I met my lovely partner at the end of my 20s. And then, you know, we went travelling and he's, he's Scottish and we ended up in Scotland. And I never, I never wanted a regular life, really. I never right. wanted to be married and have children and tied down and waiting yeah. for the man's car to come in at the end of the day to tell me about the outside world. I wanted to be in the outside world, you know. And I wanted to go out there and make my own life. And I knew from a really early age that I wanted to be a writer. Apparently at the age of five, I did say to my mother, she, she tells the story, you know, she was reading Enid Blyton to me And I said to her, I'm going to do that. And she was telling me that Enid Blyton was translated all around the world and at this very moment children, you know, across the water were reading this, you know, in countries across across the water overseas. And I said, I'm going to do that. And she said, what? And I said, write, write books. You know, apparently I was very certain. And then, you know, I went on this wayward thing in my late teens and 20s and then had to come back to that childhood dream of writing and being a writer. But it seemed to me I had to leave... Uh, not, I didn't have to leave Australia. I was unlike that earlier generation of Australian writers who, you know, they had to leave. The irony for me is they had to leave something they saw as quite constraining, mm-hmm. so in the 50s, say. Mm-hmm. Germaine Greer, Clive James, mm-hmm. that generation of people. Um, and then they end up in the belly of the monster. They end up in London anyway. They end up in England, you know. Uh, I wasn't, certainly wasn't like that. I think my generation was the last generation to have, to throw off the cultural cringe that Australians had. Right. You know, and there's a there's a link there with Scottish mm-hmm. cultural cringe too, I think, mm-hmm. um, throwing off that idea. So I didn't have that idea that I had to go away, leave Australia to make it in any sense. But I certainly felt I had to leave my suburb and, and leave a kind of expected life for women still perhaps uh-huh. at yeah. the end of the 70s, you know. And oh, the eighties, uh-huh. early eighties. I don't think it was still that open for women. Um, I didn't know any writers, or yeah, I didn't know any of that. Um, well, it's
2: interesting you said from an early age you were, you knew you wanted to be a writer because I, I I felt that too strongly. Mm. Uh, it, it was a calling, and I absolutely it's knew vocation. It absolutely was, and it's I knew th- it sort of deforms your life though in one way as well because you know, I mean, I when I. Susan Sontag has this one I think I've I've slightly twisted this quote over the years and I'm probably misremembering it but I always remember Susan Sontag was asked why she wanted to be a writer and she said this is in my version of the quote because this is how I feel she said I wanted to live everyone's lives forever and I think yeah, that's so that's, beautiful it is you, beautiful and, But even when you say Like The husband and wife Living in the suburbs And coming home from a normal job I think there's romance in that too And in a way I would love to live that life But it's just not for me And the way my wife is set up Is I couldn't live that life But I still find something impossibly romantic about it. And I think as a writer, we, we want to occupy all these people's lives, yeah. but we get to do it through the writing. Yeah. So in other words, we get to do our own life, which is our vocation, but
1: we get to spend time and all these other different people's lives, which I love the most. You get to live more than once yes. while you're alive, yes. which is really, really beautiful. And getting back to what you're saying, yes, the adolescent in me sneered at that, you know, suburban life or yeah, whatever. The way. adult in me really understands and particularly my dad you know who'd falsified his age at the age of 17 to go off to war you know where could an irish catholic get a job yeah. up until that time in australia it was only the the police the civil service or the priesthood and the army yep. you know so big family he goes he goes off to war at 17 so what would you know of course 6 years later you would want to have security stability if the government was giving ex-serviceman a, a loan to mm. build a house and have a block of land, of course you would do that. And of course it would be a very, very beautiful thing to do. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I can see that that was very moving. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, and I, yeah, it's, my father's story is very similar as well. And so when, when I knew, I, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was growing up, as I was saying. And, but one of the things, the reasons, one of the motivations was I wanted to sort of pay back the sort of gratitude I have for the experiences I had as a child my first book this is Memorial Device was set near in Airdrie Cope Bridge, and you know a lot of people talk about small working class towns especially in Scotland and a lot in Scottish literature they're often portrayed in a very sort of I, a way I consider quite cliched like working class in, in, in narratives are always about how difficult it is how rough these towns are how lacking in culture they are how everyone's a junkie or an alcoholic and there's violence and stuff but I wanted to show an entirely different side to what it was like to grow up up in a small town in Scotland. So my first book was like a love letter, a love letter to all the possibilities, to the romance of oh, small towns because it was romantic to me growing up and I'm very grateful for the experiences I had. So these books, I, I, write, I write my books in gratitude
1: as well for the circumstances that I was gifted. Yes. You know? Yeah, I've come to realise that too. I, w- I would say I have th- three homes. Yeah, I feel I have my home here in Scotland and home in greece that i've created with my partner and uh, australia is my birth home i guess and i kind of moved between those those three places but greece is definitely a spiritual home and it's strange as a irish australian to say that but uh, the first time i ever went but then i grew up in melbourne with all these greeks you know the third largest greek city in the world is melbourne so it felt very comfortable for me to go there and i've You know, I lived and worked there before, and my third novel was set in Greece. But I guess how I feel about home in Australia has really changed after my mother's death at the end of 2012. I'd lived in Scotland since 1992, and then I felt a terrible pull for a few years to go back to Australia. So I'll just read a little bit Mm -hmm. uh, from a pamphlet that the Saltire Society commissioned me to write called The Artist and Nationality. So this, I wrote this in uh, 2013, and things have changed now, but perhaps closest to how I feel as opposed to think about the question of my dual nationality is this. I feel complicated. A year ago it would have been less complicated, but I write this in the wake of my mother's death. The house I grew up in has been sold, and after 20 years we've just sold our Edinburgh flat. There is movement and upheaval all round, and mostly I feel at a loss. The upheaval at a psychic level has been sudden and tsunami-like hitting me when I got back to Scotland after the funeral. I know I'm not alone in these feelings, that in fact it's common after the death of a parent, especially the last surviving parent. A friend told me that after the death of his mother, he had a strong, unaccountable pull to Renfrewshire, to his family home that he'd never felt before. And when I asked what he thought this was all about, he said, quite simply, going back to the womb. As Kathleen Jamie puts it in her poem, Swifts, Deserts, moonlit oceans, heat climbing from a thousand coastal cities, are as nothing now, say our terse screams. The cave dark we were born in calls us back. I left Melbourne 30 years ago and why I feel a pull to be there now that my mother is gone unravels me. It is forced to rethink of my life here in Scotland and of the life I haven't lived in Australia. This is something I didn't expect. Many Australian expatriate writers of an earlier era, felt torn between their home country and their new place of creative expression, usually England. And what this meant for Australian writers, according to Jill Neville, who lived in London for many years, was that they had to cut themselves in half to find out what the world was like and that they left behind their psyches and their atavistic selves. This is something all migrants face at some point, especially as they get older. How have I spent my time and where will I end my days? I've seen this happen to friends' parents in Australia, ageing Greeks and Italians, wondering where those years went. Why should I have thought I'd ever be exempt? It's
2: beautiful. I mean, I, I've been coming to terms of that sort of thing myself recently as well. I think, I wonder if, with the death of parents as well, well, you can no longer go home. There's that beautiful Thomas Wolfe title, you can't go home anymore. Yeah. And I, I think... Being able to let go and come to terms that is, is is quite challenging it's for... It's taken me seven years. Yeah, well, and, and do, do you ever fully get over it? I mean, I don't know. I mean... yeah. Are your parents alive? My mum's alive. My father... Uh, passed in uh, 2013 and it was interesting because in terms of like letting go my mum finally has sold the house in Airdrie where we grew up so I no longer even have a connection to Airdrie and mm. that's weird as well that's mm. gone now someone else lives in my home I, I think of it as I don't think I could even bear to go past and see other people in the garden but what an interesting thing that, that, that happened after my father died was I, I was I, I was haunted by a, a recurring nightmare again and again and again and every time in a nightmare my father would return as a zombie and he, literally his flesh would be, would be rotting and his beautiful suit was all in, in tatters and he would keep coming back and one morning I woke up and I realised what was going on I realised that through the power of love my love for him he was coming back because I wanted him but he was also saying look at me I'm one of the dead now I will come back for the, the bonds of love will bring me, bring me back but look at the state of me and with the dead, you have to let me go. And when I let him go, he never returned to me as a zombie again. Wow. And I began to wonder if zombies, if we get this archetypal idea of zombies from that, the yes. bonds of love that keep our, our, our dead coming back when we're unable to let them go. And I think when my fa- that was when I maybe fully began to realise the home that I have now is my real home. I have to let go of that home, which is my father's
1: home. Yes, yes. and that's really powerful. Just the other night, on the anniversary of my mother, the seventh anniversary, I think it's the seventh anniversary of my mother's death, I had a dream Mm -hmm. of a big black car going into the family driveway in Rosanna, in Melbourne. And I was standing out watching this car, almost like a hearse, I guess you could say. And I was watching this car, and it was dark. And I was outside the house, near a tree that I used to climb as a kid, and write little poems on bits of paper and things like that. And I had a f- I, I, I still am trying to work through this dream. What does it mean? I was outside the house watching this car go in, and I knew it was about my mother's death. And the next day was, you know, it was only last week. It was the anniversary of her death. And I think we have these, you know, it was a message. I'm not sure what it was. It's over, you know, the, and I'm outside. Yep. I'm outside the house.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, as writers, of this we always need to be attentive to images, and we're always and reading dreams. the signs, we're reading the images, we're reading the portents. That's why, absolutely, absolutely. that's why the poet Kenneth Rexroth said, "If you're going to be a poet or a novelist, it's important to, to study one method of divination." Yes, and I thought, you know, whether it's tarot cards, whether it's the I Ching, and I think that's fantastic because one of the key things that writers do is reading the signs. Mm. You know,
1: mm. not I all mean, writers do though. Not all writers are that interested in it. I think, as you yeah, know. I should have said the good
2: writers. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great things um, is, as a writer, for me is is having a sort of passion and a thirst for adventure. But it's also about sort of think. The great project for me has been to find myself at home in the world and in any part of the world as well. I love to adventure. I love to be able to roam. It's important for me to have a home base in order to do that, but I like to roam elsewhere. And also, find your elders out there. The poet Gary Snyder says, we don't have elders anymore, but we have books. So the books act as the elders, and they should sort of introduce you to the world. One of my big things is that I want to write myself into life. I want to cure myself of writing so that I'm writing myself back to life completely, and I don't need writing anymore because I'm fully alive once more. And um, one of the one of the transformative moments for me was several years ago. I was in Durham for uh, uh, Durham Book Festival because I'd been shortlisted for this thing called the Gordon Byrne Prize, and in uh, the next night, next day, I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a meltdown in the town. I was uh, mentally and I, in my wallet, I used to carry a thing called a cowl a lucky cap. My father was born with a lucky cap. You know, it grows oh, out of the top of your head yes, and it's supposed to be... Yeah, exactly.
1: And, and um, well,
2: Sailors would buy them because it's could. supposed to be... You couldn't, couldn't drown. Exactly. So when my father died, he left me his lucky cap in a little pouch with my name on it. But in a moment of madness, um, I was standing on the bridge at Durham next to the cathedral and I I still can't explain to myself why I did it. I took his cowl out of my wallet and in a moment of madness, I threw it into the river. my God. And afterwards, I was very, very upset about it. But then I came with an incredible realisation because I remembered, what well, he can't drown. So my father is now alive in every river of the world.
1: Oh, that's And so
2: now whenever I I travel anywhere, I imagine my father has already gone on ahead of me and I will recognise and discover him there. So it's finding yourself out there in the world is the big excitement and finding yourself at home in the world. I believe you can write yourself into that state.
1: Yeah, that's very beautifully put. Very beautifully put. I think there's the desire always for... Yeah, certainly a restlessness and adventure. And I've come to realize that you do need a stable place to come back to. But that's been a lifelong uh, learning, Mm -hmm. actually, that you can't just be physically rootless all the time or psychologically rootless even, that you come back to a certain point if you're lucky. And I realize that's a really privileged thing Mm -hmm. to be able to come home. You know, Alistair Reid said, you know, home is where the new words are. (laughs) <laughs> and in that way, I can find myself at home anywhere yeah um, but I do consider myself very fortunate to call three places home you know Scotland, Greece, and Australia, and I think out of that kind of rootlessness, if you like, uh, I draw energy from that and Create a home for words.
2: It's a great point. I mean, as I I travel a lot myself, but every time I sit down at my desk, I put my computer up, and I'm back in that zone. I perhaps I feel most at home then than at any other point. And you realize that you carry all this stuff. That's a great gift of a writer. That as long as you can bring your words and you're able to write, and you can write anywhere, really, you can kind of root yourself and you feel at home. You feel you're coming home every time. Where the
1: new words are.
0: If circumstance and opportunity don't move us, in the end, time makes us all exiles from our childhood homes, no matter how we may try to preserve them. Home begins with a conversation, is Ali Smith's comment on what's needed then. In their conversation, David and Megan, coming from such different experiences, make that very clear... Homing and homemaking are crucial elements in their conversations with themselves, with their library of reading, and in their own writing. And if home begins with a conversation, you could say that what we've been privileged to hear them doing with such energy and engagement is a kind of nest-building. Thank you for listening.
2: Listening to a conversation about home, part of a year of conversation, featuring Megan Delahunt and David Keenan. The show was directed by
1: Tom Pow and produced by Ewan Spence. A conversation about home is a Spence Media production, commissioned for Book Week Scotland by the Scottish Book Trust.